Welcome, welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, where we showcase seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Today's guest was a doozy. She was very <laughs> inspirational. Uh, she is a mother of five. She's an author of a book that we spoke about a lot. Uh, that book is called The Grand Facade, How Your Emotions Shape You and How Releasing Them Allows You to Reshape Yourself. This guest has also worked for twenty over 21 years as a trauma-informed counselor, um, primarily supporting women experiencing intimate partner abuse. And she currently works in the nonprofit sector, facilitating groups for women and youth. She had this amazing ability to open a safe place for everybody mm -hmm. to be vulnerable. I've seen that in her book, and I saw that in our interview. I think both of us, I'll speak for you, Angela, that yep, we both felt sure. really open. Mm -hmm and safe and i could just see how powerful she is as a counselor and and helping people through terrible things and events in their life um she has also experienced some terrible things in her life um through domestic abuse when she was a very young child all the way up into adulthood and she not only survived that but she took all of that experience and she put it into a way that she could pay it forward in a good way with love and help all of these women and youth that she's helping. And she does an incredible job of it. And I think her book needs to be read by everybody. I think we all have things that we need to work on, on ourselves. She does a really good job of, of just teaching her process and how she deals with emotions and the effect that that has not only on our mental health, but our physical health as well. Yep. I agree. It was an absolute pleasure to meet her. And she was just so warm, as you said. She's so easy to talk to. Uh, and she talks about these things in a way that is feels very grounded and feels very accessible. It doesn't feel like, um, oh, so airy. And it feels also very important because she talks about how basically there's different ways of getting over trauma or you think you got over trauma because you um, continued on with your life and even were successful in a few different areas of your life. But still, if you don't process it in a healthy way, then um, it, it, it's still there and it's still impacting you in ways that you may not even realize. So she spoke of that in a very powerful way. I think it made me uh, look inward and I think it'll help other people do that as well and and continue on, on this fun journey to figure our life out. <laughs> yes, I definitely agree. And like even in the title of her book, there's it says releasing emotions, which could be an intimidating topic to some people, but she makes it even as easy as watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Like she goes to all extents to show that the work you do, it's hard work, but it doesn't have to be hard if you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So with that, to all our listeners, please enjoy Danielle Gauthier. Let's talk to our neighbors, because everyone can inspire. The Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, Light So first of all, welcome, Danielle. Uh, we are so excited to have you. We, we've both read your book. It's an amazing uh, memoir and recount of the life that you've lived. And I think you did an incredible job of writing it. The book is called The Grand Facade, How Your Emotions Shape You and How Releasing Them Allows You to Reshape Yourself. Uh, welcome. Um, congratulations on your first book. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me and being open to having this conversation. 
Well, it's our pleasure. We love doing this. Um, I wanted to open with a really quick story. When we started your book, uh, we were reading it together a few nights ago, my wife and I. And I got, we got, I think like 30% in. I know because it was on Kindle and Kindle tells you the exact percentage of you, of your progress through the book. And we stopped the book and I had an enormous tummy ache, like crazy, just immediate stomach ache. And I was, <laughs> I was almost like curled up in pain thinking, I need Danielle. <laughs> need Danielle to come and rescue me and like whatever emotions are in me right now I need Danielle to come and release them somehow oh, so wow. uh we actually I actually did some work because I had just been reading the book uh, I was inspired to do some emotional work and probably within a couple hours the tummy ache was gone so I just want to say that I also subscribe to the the method of healing that you discuss in your book. Um, I'd love to hear more about it in the interview, but uh, I thought I would share that with you and, and maybe ask what emotions give you a tummy ache <laughs> aside from all of them. Yeah. And I, I, I certainly would say all of them because it is an, it's an upset. It is your body yeah. telling you that something, uh, something is uh, not necessarily that something's going wrong, but that something is going on and there's, a, and you're noticing the energy. And I, I want to give you the feed, kind of feedback right away. just validation that how incredibly self-aware you are, because as you know, from reading, I went through, you know, most of my life being unaware of mm -hmm. my body telling me anything. So the fact that you were so clearly aware that, Oh, I have the stomach ache and we're able to articulate what is happening in the moment. And then mm -hmm. even put into a thought of, what could I do? I could chat with Danielle or I can look through, I can chat with my wife and I can, I can let this out. And sometimes we don't know what the emotion is, but what's most important is knowing that something has come up for you right. and that you knowing that you have options to do something about it. To me, that is 95% of the journey. So well done. Oh, thank you. I have to attribute most of that to my wife because I'll say like, I'll say things like, Oh man, I have a headache today. <laughs> And I'll be like this close to grabbing a Tylenol or something. And Laura will say, well, you have to release something. It's just, <laughs> you don't have a headache. You have trapped emotions or whatever, and you have to release something. So go do that. And, and, I, like... I, and I agree with you that having somebody that you trust, it sounds like you have a really good trusting relationship with mm -hmm. your wife, of course, you know, worth its weight in gold. But just know that you have to trust yourself first in order to even be willing to go to say, oh, I need to, I need to chat with Danielle or I need to go, I need to go to my wife because I, so the fact that you're able to do that as well, just really speaks to your self-awareness and your, the personal work that you've already done. You must feel deserving of having some relief of that pain because you're, you know, open to and willing and able to go to your wife and say, hey, you know, this is happening for me. Even if you're not clearly saying, can you help me? Just by yeah. you going to her, you're saying, can you please help me? So that's, again, is, is incredible. Like so I hope validating for you with the personal work that you've already done. Like, well done. Thank you. Yeah, I think, I feel like I have a lot left to do, but thank you for saying that. Don't we? We all do. We all, there, there's no <laughs> rush. I feel like when we're done, that's our time to cross over. So slow down. There's no okay. rush. Thank you. I love that, that interpretation, was, by the way. Me too. <laughs> I, 
guys i i so i've been like two degrees removed from this releasing emotions discussions because you know i hear it through trevor and laura mostly um so it was really interesting to read your book and learn uh, a, a lot more than i knew about what it meant um but maybe we can like bring it back for the listeners who haven't heard of this and Definitely. um maybe i would ask two questions around that one is what did you think what was the first time you were exposed to this idea of releasing emotions? What was your thoughts? And then my second question would be like, what, what does it mean to release emotions? Mm. So I started working in a women and children's shelter as a frontline crisis counselor in 2001 and went in thinking, uh, I have some life experience and I have a lot of compassion, I have a lot of empathy, and I think I'm a good listener. I can be a big talker too, but I think I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good listener. And uh, I, I would like to go in and and, uh, and sit and offer support as you know best I can. And knowing that there was so much on uh, on the job training as well, lots of uh, vicarious trauma and running groups and one on one, so I was able to really dive into the work. Um, of, of personal or professional development while I was on the job, which was so incredible for me. There was a woman who I write about in the book who I name as Norma. She was a group facilitator at the time that I started and also a one-on-one -on -one counselor. And I do speak about her uh, a lot in the book, or at least how significant a role she played in. Um, I was quite, uh, quite freaked out by her, to be honest, when I first met her because she seemed so grounded, so, uh, so she seemed to move so slowly, it made me incredibly uncomfortable. And when we did groups, when I would, she would ask me to co-facilitate a group for her, I just wanted to be in the doing. So can you give me a marker? I'll be the one that writes the things on the board. I'll be the ones, what snack? Oh, we're gonna have snack. I'll go and make the snack. Oh, somebody's child was wearing a shelter setting. Somebody's baby monitor's going off. I'll go check your child. Anything mm -hmm. to keep moving so that I didn't have to feel. At the yeah. time, I was not aware that that what I was is what I was doing. But what I started to witness, even in my disconnect from myself and trying so hard to stay disconnected from the emotion I was witnessing, I wanted to witness it. I wanted to be part of it. But I just wasn't able at that time to get out of my own way and didn't realize I was in my own way. So but I was present enough to know that what this woman was able to do in just sitting with somebody and putting a hand, for example, giving we have this great tool that we use called a heart sandwich that Susan Aaron actually taught us. She's the one I learned psychodramatic body work from. You put a hand on your back and a hand on your front, or the hands just might hover because, of course, you're not mm -hmm. just going to dive in and touch somebody right away. So this group facilitator would do that, put a hand, even just hovering on the person's back, in their heart, and uh, hovering a hand on the front, and just to ask the woman if she would just breathe. So again, we're working mostly with women at this time because it is a women and children's shelter for women who have experienced intimate partner abuse. and it was incredible, not just the experience of witnessing the two of them. You could see, you could almost see the woman's, uh, her, whatever emotion she was feeling, you could see her coming and landing in her body. And wow. you saw the same of the facilitator. It was like the two became one. But then all of the other women that were in the group, myself included, 
there was like a magic that was happening that I found so fascinating. I was so drawn to, but also freaked me out because I did, again, not aware of this, but I didn't feel that I was worthy to be part of that or that I actually could play a, a role in, in igniting that kind of healing, that kind of grounding. But I knew right away, whatever it is that this facilitator does is something different than I've ever seen in a group facilitation um, experience or in one-on-one -on -one experience in holding space for somebody. Um, and so it is this woman that shared with me that she had uh, been studying psychodramatic body work, which the truly the simplicity of it is shifting from talking about the scary stories, talking about the things that have happened in our life that have had an emotional impact or gave us an emotional charge. It's shifting from talking about it to kind of taking a breath and recognizing where do you feel that story? Where do you feel that experience? Is it in your chest? Is it in your belly? Is it in your joints? Where are you feeling it? Now let's put something into practice that's going to work for you to release that emotion. Ideally, so you can move forward. The memory will always be there. But the charge that that memory has, particularly when we're speaking about trauma, when we're speaking about times that we've been wounded and hurt, the charge that it has, the reason triggers are so can be so debilitating is the charge that they come up with, or come with, sorry. It's not the red car that goes by that reminds me of the man that pulled over and did this to me. It is the, it's the visceral experience I have when I see that red car. So releasing the emotion that's connected to the first experience of what that man did to me that was driving that red car, the more I can release the fear, release that feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, release the anger I had of having no control, um, and releasing the grief I had of the loss of that innocence in my life before that experience. The more I can release that, the more I can see the red cars go by, and of course still remember all oh, that, you know, that does me, but I'll know what to do. I can take a breath, and it doesn't have to halt me in my tracks and even take me into a, um, to use a mental health term, but a dissociative state. I'm able to stay present and grounded, honor how I feel, and honor the power of that experience and that I'm deserving of taking as much time as I need to release that emotion. Another big thing I just pull these Kleenexes up, when folks cry and when somebody's crying, what I noticed, to me, I thought, oh, we should give that woman Kleenex. We should give that. It's the last thing I, and it, it, it's a learning that I had very, very early on in, in uh, groups. She shared with me, keep those Kleenexes down. And it is something that commonly we do. She said, put those Kleenexes down because as soon as you do this, often for many, even I would challenge most, the first thought is, oh, I'm kind of doing something wrong. She wanted to shut me down. You're wanting me to suck it up. You're wanting me to blow that. And I'm not saying to let somebody suffer as all of the fluids are coming out of their orifices if they need a Kleenex by all means, you know, be mindful of how you pass the Kleenexes and when you pass the Kleenexes. So it's not our job to rob somebody of their misery, of their feelings. And this can really, these Kleenexes can really shut somebody down and put them in a place of judgment, of feeling that they're not deserving of having their emotion. And so it's moving in really closely um, and, and moving in really slowly. Sometimes it's with a hand on the back. <clears throat> before the Kleenexes.
Oh, and wow. I just gave such a long answer for the first part. That, I'm sorry. I forget <laughs> that was an amazing answer. Okay. I just think, you know, thank you. Answer. Thank you for, uh, for bringing that down. I think so. Um, and, and when you explain, I think maybe we'll get there later on, but when you explain your experience with uh, psychodramatic body work, where you're acting out kind of um, situations you've been in, in a way, or like a, a, a conversation with people who had hurt you, uh, conversation is not the right word, but an interaction, um, yes. then that, that sounds extremely powerful to me and, and we'll, we'll, uh, get there. That maybe is, um, on the strongest side of releasing what made like look like it to release emotions, because you also mentioned maybe just watching a TV show, uh, can help you release emotions. So Absolutely. is it something and- like, like really feeling the feeling your feelings kind of thing instead of, uh, putting them away? Absolutely. And when it's brilliant that you named the TV show, because what I think, even when folks will read the front of the book and see the word emotions, it's, it's scary. And why? Because and I can speak from my own experience, but I have lots of experiences where um, emotion was scary to see somebody angry meant something bad was going to happen. If I felt scared, something bad was going to happen. So I've got lots of, of early stories that are connected with emotions that aren't the greatest stories so Mm -hmm. if i stayed in those stories if i perpetually stayed in that loop of those stories then i would just live in for and forever holding in my emotions because my um, experience and my the story i keep telling myself is anger is bad fear is bad grief is bad so i'm just going to be fine all the time and Mm -hmm. definitely quickly learned i've learned that that's not hasn't had stopped working for me for sure but when you just named a TV show, it doesn't have to be releasing emotion does not have to be sitting with a therapist or a counselor and, uh, you know, releasing your entire guts on the floor. It doesn't have to be that. It can be exactly what you just said, Angela, of watching a show. I think I make reference to Grey's Anatomy in the book. The first time I ever started watching that was the beginning of the, of the pandemic. I'd never really been a binge watcher of anything, but pandemic put me in at home and on the treadmill a lot but mm-hmm. I think anytime we we watch any show our emotions are 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 constantly coming up we just not might not be aware of them so psychodramatic body work takes us to a place of awareness recognizing mm-hmm. where we feel fear in the body how it manifests how we feel um, the anger what does that stomach make, ache mean when I'm scared when I have that uh fear headache, uh, which is like a vice grip squeezing your head. When I know that, then I can say, oh, isn't it interesting? Um, This has scared me and I can do something about it. And it doesn't have to be that I've taken myself to a scary story because maybe I don't want to. Maybe I don't want to talk about the time that what that guy in the red truck did to me. Maybe I don't want to share that with anybody. So if if that's how I feel and I'm, and that's a decision I have made, does that mean I don't get to heal? And I think absolutely not. I don't think we all have to go back and, and share our scary stories with people. But I do need to recognize how did that make me feel when that happened? Do I remember my legs shaking? Do I remember the heaviness in my legs? Do I remember the tightness in my chest? Do I remember the scream I wasn't able to release because I just stood and froze? Those are the pieces I can release. And I could watch a scary movie. And I can scream into a pillow in the movie if I want. I don't have to tell my buddy beside me that I'm actually screaming because what that guy in that red truck did to me 
scared the living crap out of me. And I was so, so mm -hmm. scared. And I wasn't able to let any. So I'm going to watch this funny scream movie that's, I think, in theaters right now. And I'm going to bring a pillow with me and I'm just going to scream. Because my body doesn't care why I'm screaming. My body just says, thank you. My body just mm -hmm. says, oh, we're letting fear out. We're letting fear out. My body doesn't need to go to the mind and say, why is it we're doing that? The mind often does. It's the mind that can take over. I need to know why, 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 why. The body says, please just do it. Please yeah. just do it. What do you think it is? This is a very, probably a two-hour answer. But what do you think it is that makes us shut those emotions down? That makes us say, it's better not to share these. Is it just because it's uncomfortable and we make people uncomfortable with them? Or well, I, Yeah, I love that you asked this. And I think as much as it, we can talk about it for two hours, I don't think it's a, it's a two-hour answer, really. I oh, think great. one big layer is the societal norms. I was just actually mm -hmm. speaking to a, a group of women um, in, a, in a women's connection group from a church. And... I say the average age was probably about 70. If they're, if they ever hear this and they say, I'm not 70, <laughs> maybe, some, maybe somewhere younger, but definitely somewhere older as well. Um, but so many heads nodding whenever I spoke about, you know, have any of you heard the expression when they were crying, when you were young, started to cry a little bit. Did any of you hear, I'll give you something to cry about. And mm -hmm. 80 plus percent of the room started to nod their head. Yes. And then even just speaking about, well, what was the, what was your experience in life as a child from your parents? Well, most of them, if not all of them, their parents were in the war. Their parents fought in the war. So when dad came back from the war, how connected was dad to self? And therefore, how connected could dad be to you? My book does talk about my life and things that have happened in my life. But my goal was never to beat up anybody in my life that hurt me. It was the it was quite the opposite. It was to have I know to have empathy and compassion for my own things that I've done to hurt people, and I'm not going to say I'm not I'm not done. I'm sure I'm still going to make mistakes and hurt people. I can't forgive myself. I can't move forward. I can't really release uh, the blame, shame, and guilt that comes up with that if I don't look back and mm -hmm. acknowledge and honor and give grace to the experiences of the people that hurt me. And what story do they have about their emotions? How well were they able to express themselves? How connected were they to themselves? And therefore, how connected were they to their kids? So again, speaking to these, these group of older women, it was really quickly clear why all of them, very well put together, cosmetics on, hair done, just beautiful. Their hair all curled, smiling, greeting you at the door, like everything is fine. And we started to talk a little bit about emotion and about things they may have experienced as a, as a child and how, who they were able to go to. And it was a consensus. There wasn't anybody. So it's really brilliant as a child, as a young person, we're, we're, children are incredibly brilliant and resilient. And they tell a story about what they can and can't do in a space really quickly. It's as adults that we make it more complicated. We have many more layers. But a child will learn really quickly where is it safe to cry here? Is it safe to get scared here? Is it safe to get mad here? If dad's come home from the war and the way he uh, deals with his anger is with alcohol, a child learns really quickly. Don't go to dad when he's on his second drink. Don't go to dad when. And so when when the child is angry, when the ch then the child may have that story that 
well, anger is bad. So I shouldn't express it because it's bad. Then I'm bad. Or this isn't a safe space for me to be angry because my dad can be 10 times angrier and I'm going to get hurt or my mom's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get hurt. So I developed this story about anger. And again, all of these women, all of them agreed. There was not one that didn't agree that um, what their upbringing taught them about emotions is what's helped them uh, keep their emotions in and how much they've suffered from um, illness and uh, and uh, just issues with their bodies because they've held in. And then society, what I did say to these women as well, I don't mean to exclude men, but that we as women have to honor too that we impose this uh, ability to nurture, be nurturing endurers on each other as well. So mm-hmm. I have a friend that, come, that comes to me and says, oh, Danielle, I you know, got up crazy early this morning. I taught a spin class. Then I came home and got the kids' lunches. And then I went to work and caught, I couldn't have lunch because my work day was so busy. Then I came home and I took my son to soccer. Then I did this, then I did this, then I did this, then I did this. And I say, wow, is that ever awesome? Holy, like, good for you for fitting that all in a day. So I give her a pat on the back for all of the lack of self-care that she put in to that day. It was all about running, 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 doing, 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 doing. And then I give her kudos for that. When I spoke about that with the women, they all were looking at each other. And you could see some starting to put a hand on the shoulder of the woman beside them or on the leg on the person beside them as if they were kind of exchanging um, memories of experiences that they've had in their own homes, but Mm -hmm. also with each other. As, you know, just the busyness of running a church, how many, how many of them were, have been doing that from a place of resentment, from a place of enduring, from a place of duty, and mm-hmm. not taking moments just to take care of themselves. And self part, a big part of self-care is honoring your emotions. Sometimes having a cry because something happened or didn't happen that made you sad. You don't have to take it into a big story. Just acknowledge your chest is heavy. You need to cry, have a cry. And to bring it back to what you said at the beginning, Angela, about the show, uh, watching a show is a really brilliant, gentle way of accessing emotion without taking it to a story. You can do it with your children. Put on, I can only think of really traumatic Disney movies right now, but put on a a movie where somebody somebody suffers a loss. Mm -hmm. And not only can your child have tears, you can have tears with your child. And again, so many women and my age as well, I'm 50, grew up kind of believing as in motherhood that your, your kids shouldn't see you upset. Well, how well did that work out? So mm-hmm. I, I suck up my tears. I go to the bathroom and have them in private. So how did I pave the way for my kids to have safe um, expression of their grief? Knowing I only passed on what I've been given and I'm learning. And my hope is that as I'm learning more, that my kids, when they have kids, will, as they're giving themselves uh, space for expressing themselves, that their their children will have, it, it's a huge pendulum shift. Their children will have a completely different experience, I'm hoping, with uh, accessing and releasing emotion and uh, the blame, shame, and guilt that won't go with it uh, than I did and that my parents did and their parents did. Wow. You do incredible work. I'm just in awe of you and, and the amount of people Thank that you've you helped in your life. Uh, I wanted to ask in your book, like near the beginning, I guess, throughout the book, I would say, 
you discuss your childhood and, and in particular um, this, this thing you developed where you were in need of control. You've kind of developed a need to be in control, uh, whether it was in control of a situation or in control of your emotions or in control of your anger or, um, or not being not showing that you are scared or had fear. Uh, can you speak to that and like kind of what, what drove that as a child? What, what made you need to have that control? Well, I think, um, yeah, and I, I definitely spoke about it right from the beginning. The first chapter is called the smile and I spoke about um, being able to uh, control how others perceive um, what I'm feeling and not feeling by mm. Uh, wearing a smile and I definitely learned that from my mom who I you know learned it from her mom and I'm sure uh, it goes generations uh, back um, but seeing what I perceived as lack of control so both my biological and uh, and stepfather when they were angry it was scary and yeah. uh, they used uh, they used uh, verbal threats they used loud voices they used you know, stomping of the fist. They used abuse uh, to to gain control in the room, and it was really, really scary. So mm -hmm. right away, I learned that expressing anger is bad. That you look scary to other people. You look mean. Um, and so, and and in that, there was no place really for my grief and fear because they were the ones that were making me scared, and mm -hmm. they were the ones that I would have felt sad and alone because of so they certainly right. weren't the people that I could go to, to to support those emotions so I really believe at a very young age before I kind of had conscious memory that I just made that decision that uh, that there's no space really for, for grief and uh, fear and I would be drawn to other people it's interesting I would be drawn to other people that um, well I guess why I became a counselor that were having their emotions and I would want to support them with that I didn't want to shut them down but certainly it was, I realized it's such a distraction for myself. If you can mm -hmm. just have all your feelings. In fact, I'd like to keep, you know, with grace, with kindness, with love, I'd like to keep poking you so that you'll have even more feelings because then mm -hmm. I, I definitely don't. And perhaps some of it was, I felt vicariously, I was having some ex, from some uh, expressions of emotion because the hundreds of women I've worked with over the years, I was able to sit with them and witness but I know a lot of it was about avoidance and distraction. If I could mm -hmm. just stay focused on what your pain is and help you in releasing yours and working in a shelter setting, it is pain. That is what, um, when women are coming to a shelter, um, it is in, it, they are in crisis. It is the last place that they want to come. It is very, um, and I know you'll, I'm, I'm trusting you'll hear this with respect. It is very easy for me to just stay focused on their trauma on their crisis on their chaos and their mm -hmm. and not uh, focus on my own because there was an overabundance of it. Yeah. So needing to control, then I then I feel like I feel like I writing the book really helped me to to uh, validate this that I got pretty creative at finding different ways to have control. If I can control what you perceive me to be and what you if I can even more so, take it a step further. If I can control the things that you want and need from me, brilliant. Then I don't, there's no unexpected. I'm never going to be caught off guard. I'm not, I, I'm not going to feel even more scared than I already do. 
because I already know what to expect. So I'm going to create roles in my life and step into roles that have clear um, uh, expectations. So if mm. I'm a spin instructor, for example, I know when you approach me in my spin class, you're going to be asking me something about your physical health, your mobility. You might, you might even be asking me about how come when we, uh, we were climbing that hill, I kind of cried a little bit. I'm going to expect that because that happens in spin class. So I already know the narrative that's the potential narrative. So I have control. I'm in my gym gear. I, for the most part, know what to expect. As a personal trainer, same thing. As a, even as a, it's the mom thing that I didn't have that all mapped out. Um, but as a, a counselor, same thing. I know what women are going to come and they're, they need something from me. And I know it's not going to be about me having to go within myself. I can right. stay, I think I wrote this as a two dimensional support. And I'm, I say that with a lot of vulnerability because I'm not, I'm still, I'm not overly. I would say I'm, I'm yet proud of that. I can mm -hmm. give it grace because I understand that I did that from a place of self-preservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you know what? I am going to just give it full grace. <laughs> I'm going to give it full grace. Because um, I want to say that I've always been uh, fully in, in, immersed in my work and being um, fully connected, but then I wouldn't have had a book to write about <laughs> because I absolutely yeah. wasn't. And I know I did do great work coming from that place of keeping myself safe. Mm -hmm. I know that I was a mirror for so many folks that I worked with, but I also know that writing this book and even, even hearing some of your feedback before we started uh, today, when you said to get being vulnerable as the, as the coach or as the teacher to be vulnerable, I know myself when somebody shares something of themselves, like really deep from themselves, I, it's like this, just this layer of, um, of uh, protection just comes right off me. I just feel, so I know that that's what I experience, but to get, come to a place of believing and trusting that I was enough, that somebody else might have that experience. If I became vulnerable, that has mm -hmm. taken me long 50. And I, and I am still in that. I'm not, the book isn't, Hey, here's what I've done. And I'm all wrapped up in a nice neat bow. I'm not. I'm very, very, very much a work in in uh, in progress. I just feel like perhaps part of what will propel me even deeper into my work is doing this, is showing, is giving a you know a piece of evidence or proof. Here, I I'm telling you, I have held so much in, and I am really working on it. And maybe some of these um, tools and practices, even one thing, maybe you'll read one line in the book that you sit back and close your eyes and take a breath and look in the mirror and say, Oh, I, I already knew that. I did know that about myself. I do have that within me to me. Then, then this allows me to reach so many more people. Cause I'm only my community. I can only reach so many people. And that's also why I wanted to do this, to be honest, because I do believe that I'm still a work in progress and I need to stop waiting until I think I'm done and then I'm worthy of, of sharing. I think it's mm -hmm. the opposite. I need to share while I'm, while I'm still feeling like I'm kind of in the muck myself because then maybe you'll want to come in, in the muck with me. I just want to say again, you do an amazing job of opening up and removing that. <clears throat> I guess the best word is a facade. You remove that in the book and 
I love the way you put it in the book where you talk about the desk and you have yourself on one side of the desk as the counselor and on the other side of the desk is the client or the, the person you're providing counseling to. And and just the realization that you can remove that desk and and it becomes that much more powerful and you just spoke to it um, brilliantly. So I I respect you for for having that vulnerability and the strength to be that brave around them because I think it it just doubles the amount of openness that they feel they can have with you. So thank you. And just know that that pull to bring the desk back, I still have that. That's the way I kind of name in the book my I do believe I have an addiction to control. And I also I believe that globally there's mm-hmm. folks if you were to put it uh, draw a continuum line you know, kind of from zero to 10 that I personally believe and I'm so okay if folks hear this and think absolutely not. And it's, you're allowed to agree, disagree with me. I believe globally, everybody can stand on that continuum of, of having of, of an addiction to control in some way, shape or form, because we've all experienced uh, wounding of some sort and a desire then to not be wounded again. So to want to control not being hurt again, it's, it's our human it's in our uh, humanness. So my pull to bring a desk back in conversations, in especially ones that are the closest to me, this this journey for me is about getting as close to home as possible. It certainly started with work with folks that are, you know, not my family, not my. This book propelled things forward to having, you know, a conversation. Uh, I I read uh, a chapter to my stepfather and my mom and uh, read what I feel is the most powerful chapter of the wounding I experienced with my stepfather and at the hands of him, but also give my my own uh, interpretation, my own perception of where his wounding came from. And it was, I did it without tears, without even without sweating, which I'm still pretty amazed at, as mm. sweating is a common uh physical symptom and sign of, of unexpressed fear. I thought I, that I would have been, you know, kind of drenched reading a chapter to, to my mom and stepdad and not at all. I found it incredibly um, empowering and freeing. And I felt there was no desk. I just felt like I was reading, but having a conversation with the two of them, I wanted them to know I see them, I forgive them and uh, love them. And I feel sad for the experiences that they have both had in their life and sad for the experiences my stepdad did and didn't have in his life that led him to his um, need to have control so it was a beautiful writing the book just even to be able to have that conversation made it worth it I didn't think I'd be having these conversations one day but to be able to do that I thought you know what if this is all that comes from it this is uh, is beautiful but I'm finding that's where I'm making my way into is into the people that are closest to me so it's really scary and the my pull to bring that desk back between so that I can step into a role is absolutely still there which is just telltale that my work I think our personal work is is never done and that it's okay to just make peace with that mm-hmm and I think just like when I use that example of the, the seeing the red truck that goes by, that there, you know, the word triggers is, is, is commonly used with um, folks that have um, been diagnosed with PTSD or have experienced trauma in their life. 
to simplify, a trigger is when you see something, smell something, taste something, touch something that reminds you of a past experience. So triggers can be positive as well. You smell a flower and it reminds you of, you know, when you used to sit and drink tea with your nanny, that's a beautiful, you know, a beautiful memory to have. But seeing a red truck that was driven by, um, by a man that harmed you, uh, of course, is not, is not a welcoming uh, is not is not a good trigger to have. So mm -hmm. I know I will always be. There's always going to be things in my world that are going to trigger me. There's always going to be times. And for me, my biggest trigger is my emotions. So when I am having, when I feel scared or sad, those are those are really my triggers. And a million and one things can happen in one day that can scare me or make me sad. Even just seeing a McDonald's commercial, you know, that's got a Grandpa talking with his young son. Next thing I know, I could be, you know, crying on the couch. And that's for me, that's a great way. I take full advantage of those commercials. Cry it out, I say. <laughs> like, because that's a really, you know, kind of a fun a fun one to be, you know, why are you crying? Well, this commercial just made me so feel so sad. And But to my body, am I really crying about, you know, the, the endearing conversation between grandpa and his son? Or am I having some tears about some some losses that, I had experienced as a child, probably more so the latter. And my mm -hmm. body just cares that I'm releasing the emotion. The bodies are, our bodies really are magnificent, brilliant, uh, magical, but they're also really simple. <laughs> I think our bodies are like that electrical cord and our emotions are like knots that we create in the body. And mm -hmm. I am not a shiatsu practitioner, nor am I an acupuncturist, um, but they talk about energy meridians in those two. Um, styles of, of um, medicinal healing, of energy, energy healing. So if you think about our body as an electrical cord, and every time you feel an emotion that you don't release, it creates a, a wee bit of a knot. And if you think over years and years of emotional suppression or unexpressed emotion, how many knots does that create in the body? And then how, so then therefore, how is the energy flowing through your body? So if we can look at energy look, work like that simple, I am releasing the knots that are in my body. Talk therapy matters. I am a counselor, so I certainly don't want to negate the need to um, to talk. Often our, a blockage is you need to hear that validation from somebody. You need to hear from somebody, you know what? That must have been really scary. I'm sorry that happened to you. That must have made you feel really sad. You must have felt so alone. Sometimes that's just what we need to hear to go, yeah, you know what, to let the guard down, I did feel really alone. And then we can get to the emotion. So in mm -hmm. even in studying in psychodramatic body work, there is talking. Certainly sometimes um, we're, we, we are creating a play, so there are some words. But for the most part, it is about, about developing that sense of trust through those words so that you can get to the emotion and release the emotion. But I certainly don't want to uh, put out there that having uh, – you know, open conversations that finding spaces where you feel trust, which is where uh, counseling and therapy can be so um, powerful because when our wounding has happened at the hands of folks that we know, for many of us, speaking to somebody we know about our wounding is very difficult for some, even impossible. So that's why it's so great to know about what resources are in your community, even to talk to on the phone you know, in video chat or go and visit with to sit so that you can find that trusting space to release some of your stuff. And 
and have somebody uh, validate your experiences. One thing that I really loved that you highlighted in a few different ways through your book was this idea of um, like, I don't know, I would say like life being a journey that teaches you things and you grow to become maybe let's say wiser as, as you go through the different experiences that you live. And I just want to bring that back to your uh, point about wanting to have grace for yourself and your role as a counselor and, um, you know, like putting a table there, <laughs> being on the other side of the table um, and now knowing better. I, I like the idea of you, you should have grace for yourself because that's the journey, right? Like you couldn't have known then what you know now. That's the whole point of going through these experiences is you're learning and you can't be hard on yourself for not knowing everything from the beginning, right? Then, then what would be the point of learning through? And one way that you put it, I, I think it's like, I really like it's, I was born, uh, it's like I was born as a full deck of cards and life threw me across the floor. Now I'm playing 52 card pickup. Uh, I like that visual a lot because I think the idea of like going back through your life and examining the little pieces and how they've impacted who you become for better or for worse and kind of just making decisions about how you want to take that going forward is so interesting to me. Um, so I was just from that wondering how you see that today. Like, do you, are you still doing that work of like looking through your past? Do you feel like in, in that respect you have done that work and you're kind of moving on to the present or is it continuously that things come up and you realize uh, things about your experience in the past and how they present themselves in, in today? So thank you for bringing it. I've forgotten about that, um, <laughs> that analogy. And my mom would say I was the kid that, you know, I was never mad. I wasn't sad. I was just always smiling. And so I believe I was always thinking, always sorting and always figuring out really young how to stay safe I think it was, I was probably my thinking was pretty simplistic um, but I think that uh, always sorting and uh, and kind of navigating a minefield that uh, that thought process has stayed with me and certainly helped put the book together and um, and that 52 card pickup it was like the book helped me uh, I had to look back and go bleh okay so what do I want to write about and even the, the folks, the writing group I was part of working writers co in writing this book, um, one of the members was definitely, or one of the, the uh, founders was, I don't know that you're going to fit all of this in your book, Danielle, because when I kind of went, oh, here's some things, to me it was kind of just here's some things. They had no idea all the other things. There lots of other things in there. <laughs> uh, one was like, oh, I think you're trying to put too many things in my very much from a place of of uh of knowledge and education and love certainly yeah. and i was like really i only kind of grabbed a little piece though like that's just <laughs> that's just a that's just one deck i got 572 other you know over yeah. here so and to be honest she also is the one who said who had to keep saying to me danielle what do you want to say danielle what do you want to say and you mm. are the expert of your story she really helped by saying those two to, and again, this one I think about somebody reads my book and gets one line that they take. So she would keep saying, Danielle, what do you want to say? Danielle, what do you want to say? Because I would get scared when I was sharing. I think I want to talk about this. And I'm like, gosh, I would talk around it. Danielle, mm. what do you want to say? And I would say, and it was, I was afraid of how it was going to be received. I was afraid of all of that. And in the end, it was always 
every single time received with, you know, kind of, holy crap, Danielle, that sounds really good. Or yes, write that. Yes, say that. And mm-hmm. I would walk away sweating, thinking, what the heck was I sweating about? And then remember that I've got my cards on the table. And so I'm going through stuff. So I am going back. So I'm not necessarily, I wasn't reliving trauma, but I was going back and I think really uh, releasing other layers that were still there. And for myself, I feel like our life is circular, that we are always doing this. So we, you know, I go through and I learn something from uh, my life experiences and gain some wisdom. And I take that wisdom and I go back again through with that wisdom now and release some more layers. And then I, from that experience, I gain even more wisdom. And again, I go back. For me, this book really helped me see that, oh, that is what life is. And as I move through my life, some of the layers I release might be friendships, might be experiences, might be thoughts, might be, you know, activities, actions. And the wisdom I gain might be new friends, might be new experiences, new thoughts, um, you know, new, you know, new brilliance. And then we just continue to do that through life. What I'm doing now is recognizing that continuing to keep the desk away from myself and anybody I interact with is my gift that I moved through some life experiences that are not in my opinion unlike anybody else's Uh, there's folks that I've endured if I don't even like to use the terms worse and better I have to be honest to me pain is pain and I struggled with that in working in the shelter I always felt like my pain wasn't as bad as anybody else's so my initial years in the shelter helped me keep my emotions to myself helped me continue to minimize my own life experience because there was always a woman that went through came through the shelter that had a bigger something that I interpreted I perceived as bigger more traumatic scarier more painful Mm-hmm. I now believe pain is pain. Brene Brown talks about something like uh, comparative suffering. I think that that is, is a global issue as well. I think mm-hmm. for folks that keeps us from connecting, that if I think that my problem isn't as bad as yours and you share, and then I just stay quiet instead of seeing, well, you shared that, you know, that was, you, you share something that was made you feel really sad. I've actually got something that I've been holding on to that's, that's made me feel sad as well. I'm scared to tell you it because it feels so small compared to mm-hmm. what a beautiful opportunity for that person to feel that their sharing of their grief gave you a gift to open up your grief. Mm-hmm. How that in me, to me, that is, there's world peace happening right there. We're getting out of here, out of thinking what you are thinking, what you're not thinking, how I am, and just getting to hear and connecting. And as human right. beings, isn't that really what we're supposed to be here to do? I don't believe we're supposed to live in silos. I don't believe we're supposed to suffer and experience pain alone. I believe we were given this incredible heart and 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 uh, uh, brilliance and knowing and for a reason. I think we're supposed to connect. And I think that for me doing the book, it allowed me to honor how disconnected I have been and the gift that all of the women I supported in the shelter, the gift they were to me, how I kept that dust between them. Part of me wanted to say sorry in this book, 
to those that I held that desk so tight between us or so solid between us. But I do believe that the work I was supposed to do with that woman and the work that she was supposed to do for me, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. And I've reconnected with so many women actually through this book as well. That's been, it's, it's really been phenomenal, but that was my process. And when you talk about the journey of, of learning and am I still going to continue to learn? Absolutely. And if I don't keep giving grace to the pace at which I learn, I make lots of references to turtles. The sea turtle is my, which I still have not swam with one. That is a dream of mine. One day I will. I've seen them, but never swam with at least close, close proximity to one. The pace at which a turtle moves to me is just so majestic and wise. It is the pace at which I heal. But I used to say, I'm such a slow learner. I'm such a slow, and I said it with such disdain for myself and my own process. Now I say, I learn at my own pace. And, ha- mm-hmm. and I came to that because of hearing myself say so much to other people, be kind to you. They'd say, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Oh my God, how come I'm doing this again? Oh my gosh, I thought I learned all this. How am I in this relationship again with this new person? How come I took this person back? How come I went to this old job? Why did I take, and I would hear myself over and over from a true place of love, no judgment, no shame, no blame, encouraging that person to offer grace to their process and pull out all the brilliance. Look how much you learned in this relationship and took those tools into that next next relationship. Yes, this next relationship was abusive. How long was this one? Oh, 15 years. How long was this one? Nine months. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How quickly you were able to pull your tools and the same Mm -hmm. tools that you used in that relationship, how quickly you were able to honor what you know. And the more I started to set a mirror beside the folks I was working with and thought, hey, some of the stuff I'm saying seems to be working for some people. I wonder if it might work if I believed that I was worthy of hearing those words for myself. It isn't that I didn't think I had good things to say. It isn't that I don't, haven't always thought that I have a gift to support people. I think I have always known that since I was little. Mm-hmm. But for most of my life, I didn't believe that I was deserving of receiving that gift. You've used that word a lot, and I, I love it that you you're empowering people as well as yourself to know what you deserve and what you're worthy of receiving and how powerful that is. Even you said um, you're, you're deserving of feeling those emotions. That, that is not something I've ever mm-hmm. considered before. And it's a powerful statement to make. Um, it leads me to a question I had as you moved out of, I guess, childhood into your teen years um, in the book, at least you it seemed that you kept kind of falling into a situation of of abuse or people treating you a certain way um did it did it start to make you think oh this is normal like was there ever a part of you saying this is not the way you treat people or was it or did you develop this thought that okay it's just normal like this is the way people treat others so i think i think i owe I think I always knew that um, what that abuse was wrong. I always knew mm-hmm. it was not a way that people should be treated because I could always um, I could always see that in other people's relationships, and right. I would name it in other people's relationships. 
the the blockage again was in my own ability to believe that I was deserving of better. Mm -hmm. I think a couple of things. One was I thought I knew how to. I think I knew. I had a knowing of how to navigate abusive relationships. I had a knowing of how to, and a, and a, I mean, dare I use the word comfortable? I want to say familiar. I was much more familiar with navigating toxicity, navigating mm -hmm. a push-pull relationship, navigating, um, you know, I'm nice, you're mean, you're nice, I'm mean. Um, mm -hmm. So even when relationships maybe would have some good moments, I would be so, that would, was very unfamiliar with me, so, for me. So I would then do things to make it um, toxic, which isn't, isn't difficult, um, especially in the relationships that I had with the people that I was in relationship with. But again, that's where kind of self-sabotage has, has been a, um, that's been a role that I, I named kind of spin instructor, mother, um, you know, counselor, but self-sabotage was definitely another role that I think I embodied uh, mm -hmm. really well I always I, I could always tell the outcome so I had full control when I was the self-sabotager and I have such a creative inner narrative to come up with a million and one creative ways to uh, to sabotage relationships to sab and to keep the to keep the story alive that I'm not deserving so if mm -hmm. I if a person isn't treating me like I'm not deserving I need to behave in a way then that makes me um, feel that I'm deserving of being treated that I'm not deserving. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask a bit about about you being a mom because uh, that's a journey. <laughs> yeah, definitely one that I thought I might have some control in, but boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Am I yeah, wrong? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's uh, that's yeah. uh, how and everything else you seem to strategically seek control in this. Imagine yes. it's impossible. Um, how did that challenge you, and how what mm -hmm. have you learned? through that process and looking back uh, about parenting and about yourself? I definitely feel that I could, and just me, that may be a whole book in itself, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, first of all, loved being a mom, loved being a mom, loved when I got pregnant, even though the relationship that I was in was not a healthy one. Um, felt I had a purpose, felt I had uh, something that made me worthy when I got pregnant with my oldest daughter. And it also was a role I could really dive into, which made it easier to numb and avoid everything that was going on around it. So now I'm a mom and it's busy. So I have one and then 23 months later, I had another one and uh, then had my son a few years later and dove right into mother to the, I was the craft mom and the you know, went to the play groups, mom, and that I, so I stayed home with my kids um, and had other kids come in. So I had a very small kind of in-home daycare and, you know, had walls that were just plastered with the kids' artwork. And I, you know, cut up hot dogs, crackers, cheese, and grapes for lunch. Like everything was finger <laughs> foods. And and, uh, and I loved it and really got, uh, got like lost in a I think in a, in a beautiful way in that time and had no foresight <laughs> as to what it would be like when the kids made their own choices. I loved working with the kids when they were young and their creativity, dress how you want, do your hair. It wasn't, we weren't kind of a out in public, everything looks perfect. Not that, that wasn't my way at all. It was more once my oldest became, uh, became a preteen, 
I realized that something I had not planned for it was going to be something I was not going to be able to control. And mm. uh, so I did, I separated from my husband when my kids were eight, six and two. And uh, that was, uh, was difficult, but very, very necessary. I speak a little bit about it in the book, but, but not a lot. Um, and, but then uh, I met my husband who I'm married to now and uh, life just, shifted and changed and my oldest was eight then turned nine it was probably when she was 10 or and we dove in I mean I, I met met uh, an incredible man who was uh, single never been married before never been engaged before I had no kids and I'm like hi I'm recently separated with three kids uh, so we we uh, had a whirlwind of a, of a start and you know kind of insta family it was a couple of months later that he met the kids and was amazing with them from the get-go um, was and is the dad that I always dreamed of having and always dreamed of my uh, kids having. So it was really a no-brainer. Um, now, when my oldest started to, uh, is really when boys kind of came in the picture, that's when I noticed a difference in her, in her, uh, how she presented, in her confidence, in her, and boy, did it shake me up. Um, again, this could be a whole book. It was a, uh, a feeling of, when she would come home, as myself, I did as well as a teenager, but the big, big emotions kind of hanging from the chandelier. I was hanging right from the chandelier right beside her. I did not know what to do with any of that. I just wanted to fix it. I just wanted her to feel happy and feel I did not know what to do with all of that. And really what was happening was she was putting a mirror up for me. Mm. She was having her emotions. She was um, still sorting through having lived through a divorce, uh, the relationship that she was having with her biological father, uh, she was doing a lot of sorting that I had never done. Right. And I did not realize that at the time, why I was so comfortably hanging by the chandelier beside her. I was thinking, oh my gosh, Danielle, you got to get a grip here. You got to get a grip here. And that is when I uh, started I went to my first workshop and training in psychodramatic body work. It's Susan Aaron that teaches the work and my coworker had told me about it many times over the course of 10 years. And I just kept changing the subject, changing the subject. Aren't we doing enough emotional stuff here at work? Like is enough of the emotions. That's what yeah. I would say and kind of fluff her off. And I avoided her as much as I could. And then this started happening at home when I realized, uh, I think it's the first time I described myself as ungrounded that something is going to go really wrong here if I don't do something. And right. uh, so I went to the first workshop. And of course, I talk about that um, in the chapter of the lineup. And it was the most, probably the three of the most powerful days I've ever had um, um, in my life. And uh, for the first time, really experienced landing in my body. And it doesn't mean I landed and then stayed there. And even now I can pop in and out for sure. Mm -hmm. But it was the first time I really landed in my body and actually felt how scared I was. And it was an overwhelming, terrifying, but also really validating. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how validating it was for some time. I certainly realized how, I mean, I was sweating to, to know that when sweating is a, is a common symptom of, of unexpressed fear. I was, you know, this is, this is not going to encourage anybody to try psychodramatic body work, I'm sure, and go to a training. This is not everybody's response. 
I was sweating like through my pants, through my shirt. I was, and it was not hot in the room. I was so scared because I held things in for so I held all of my, you know, emotion in for so long. And when I did let it out, which I do talk in the book too, it'd be more rage. I would just let out a blast of anger where I could be so mean and so, and then suck it right up, encase it in another layer of shame. And again, that kept me in that perpetual loop of not being deserving because then I would do something, say something that was so mean. And usually to somebody who, who, um, who I'm sure I felt, felt was a safe target. And uh, then that shame, oh my gosh. And that is, that's, that's where I'm at now when you say that the 52 card pickup, am I still healing? I mean, absolutely. There's layers of layers of uh, it's much gentler now and I'm much kinder to myself, give myself much more um, grace, but um, that shame certainly uh, showed itself to me when my daughter um, became a teenager and she, to me, my kids now, my youngest now is 15. They are the gifts that just keep on giving. I thought I was going to be the teacher of crafts and I don't know what else the heck I thought I was going to teach the kids, but we were definitely going to do a lot of crafts and fun things. And I kind of thought that's what, that's what parenthood was going to be. Well, holy lift. And I did not realize that I was, you know, I was going to be birthing five teachers that were going to continue to teach me and challenge me and, um, and also um, give me more grace than I was ever willing to give myself and let me hear myself give them grace as they are mean to themselves sometimes as they are and be able to give it to them having a mirror beside them and be able to mm. say to them you know this is hard and, and I and, and not necessarily taking over by saying well I know what I know what you feel like as I went through this but being able to be present with them when they're struggling and honor my own struggle at the same time knowing I'm mom job is not to fix it like as a counselor I'll keep the desk between you tell me what you need and I'm going to give it to you I'm going to toss it over the desk and there my job is done as mom oh you tell me what is broken I'm going to tell you what you need to do to fix it it is mm -hmm. not that it is not that disconnection it is the opposite it is the connection it is the sitting with it is the being it is the sitting as I'm filling all this time up with my voice it's the sitting in the silence it's the sitting in the discomfort of the feelings that come up, not shutting them down with words, with a there, there, with tossing a box of Kleenex, with a joke, just sitting with. And mm. that is the greatest gifts that my kids have taught me and are continuing to teach me that also that everything that they need to know is within them. And I know that more so every day because I know everything that I need to know is within myself. And if I don't believe that, then I'm, I'm coming from a place of behind a facade if I'm telling them that. So I know I need to keep working on trusting that everything I need to know is within me and giving myself grace. Otherwise, when I'm saying that, it's just lip service to them. Mm. And your little angels, they are incredibly brilliant. As I was as a kid to scan the room and know who I couldn't, couldn't trust, well, my kids know that they know if I'm feeding them alive and I know mm -hmm. that they know that. So they're on to me. So I might, <laughs> I might as well just keep doing my work. I, I could see that being really, uh, really healthy way to 
have your emotions being received to mm -hmm. it's almost like i could imagine it's like instead of shutting down let's say tears to like praise tears like it like encourage them and make people feel good that they are whether it's you know in a counseling situation or kids or whatever uh yeah because i i would say like from, from my experience it's not necessarily that the feedback i heard from the world was uh you know i'll give you something to cry about it wasn't necessarily that that strong but it's, it's somehow there was a feeling of if you're sad then you're making other people sad mm. and that's not good you don't want to make the people around you that you care about sad so just don't be sad <laughs> right mm. and and i think it's so there's probably many many levels in which you can receive those messages uh but to go out of your way to make it a positive thing i could see that being well i love like, that you said that as we're talking about parenting because how many moms i've spoken with and doing groups with youth as well uh, that say well i can't i can't i come here to group because this is where i can cry because i don't want my i don't want my son or my daughter to see me cry and yet as moms we want our kids i don't know that there's any mother or father that would say um i, I hope that i teach my kids not to be able to have their emotions they'd say oh my when my Kids are sad. I hope they feel comfortable coming to me. Well, they'll feel much more comfortable coming to you if you allow them to see your own vulnerability, to see your own feelings and ex being expressed. And you know what? They might come up to you and say, oh, mommy, oh, daddy, are you okay? Oh, you're okay. And you might feel that I need to suck this up because now I'm hurting them. And it is quite what I've learned. It's the opposite. You're healing them. You're opening a door for them saying, look, this is what it looks like to cry. The world actually doesn't end. The roof is not going to come off the house if you cry. Actually, you're even going to feel better after. And you know what? Maybe we're going to hug. Maybe we're going to connect in our tears. And maybe we don't even need to talk about it. Maybe mom or dad are going to have their tears. And the kids, the child's going to come up and jump on their lap and hug and have their tears too. And maybe the child's not even going to say what, they're, they, what, they're, what they have been sad about. Maybe they don't know what they've been sad about. Maybe they don't want to talk about it either. And they don't have to. But you're, you are giving them that safe uh, space to honor their emotions. It is the best, right? That monkey see, monkey do. Kids are more apt to do, in my experience, professionally and personally. They are more apt to do as I do than do as, as I say. I am seeing my 26-year-old daughter, my 22-year-old son, my uh, even my um, nearly 18 year old daughter hearing them saying things and seeing them doing things that I'm like gosh they're things that I you should you should you should you know 15 years ago that they never would have not just because of their age but I wasn't now all of a sudden they're coming hey mom you know what I'm practicing this and mom you know what I've started journaling or mom you know what I learned this about myself or mom you know what I'm I'm ending this relationship because I really feel like this person and they're saying stuff that I'm like, I don't know what I, what, what I thought I needed to do here. I, I thought I had to say all of these things when I just needed to do my own work. And if psychodramatic body work, if meeting Susan Aaron, if prior to that, my coworker who I'm going to call Norma, that is, that, that is the wisdom that she taught me that will stay with me forever. Just do your own work. And when I'm with somebody that I feel like ah, they just need, they just need, they just need, take a breath, especially if you're getting the yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but I tried that, but that won't work. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I tried that, that won't. Mm -hmm. I've jumped into rescuing 
Take a breath, Danielle. Step back into supporting. Look in the mirror. What do you need? What angst is coming up for me? What feelings are coming up for me in that person's inability to receive my support, to receive my help? What angst is coming up for me seeing that person suffering and not seeing their ability to step out of suffering and helping themselves? Mm -hmm. And again, I know that this can sound like such a harsh phrase, but it's not my job. It isn't our job to rob other folks of their suffering. It is our job to honor when our own suffering needs to be released, when our own uh, grief, uh, sadness, fear, anger needs to be released. It isn't our job to remove it from other, from other people. There's a question that you asked, and I feel I really need to honor this when you said about uh, something about past, and I was talking about self-sabotage. In self-sabotaging, there's a great, I don't want to take full credit for this, it's a great uh, a gal named Lynn Forrest. If you Google her, you'll see she talks about the drama triangle and uh, she talks about the three points of the, the unhealthy um, or the when you're in disharmony, the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And then, of course, talks about the harmonious drama triangle as well. But that in self-sabotage for myself, I can stand in victim energy. And I had a really hard time with this one especially working with women who are made primarily women. I've worked with men as well. I'm with couples and with you. But for folks that have experienced violence and been victims of crime, I had a hard time learning about victim consciousness. So being a victim of a crime or a victim of abuse and victim consciousness, just so I'm clear with, with you, very different. I realized that I grew up and stood in victim consciousness. Yes, I was the victim of abuse, but I also stepped into victim consciousness. So looking for how I am one down, how I am not deserving, how I am less than, how I don't fit in. And I don't mean to open up a whole other, I just, this is, this, when I talk about self-sabotage, self this learning and uh, has helped me with my parenting so immensely. When I recognize, am I stepping into the rescuer role because mm. nobody needs to be rescued. And a rescuer and victim is like a match made in hell. I need to step off of that rescuer role and into supportive role. Here's what I'm willing to do. You can meet me halfway. Hmm. When I rescue somebody, if I think my kids need rescuing, what am I telling them? That they're not capable. And what do I, what, what, so what am I making them? What am I, I'm pushing them into victim consciousness. Because what did I grow up feeling like? I wasn't capable. I grew up feeling that way. And it's an awful way to feel. Because I am capable, and I think that all that globally we have we are a very capable human race. We just need to believe that and know that and see see our capabilities. Well, we all do it. I would say it's so it's so easy to jump in when you're having a serious conversation with someone and they're reaching out to you for support. It's so easy to mm -hmm. say, okay, these are what you have to do. This is this is how you help yourself. And yes. often that's not what they need. Often they just need to be heard and supported. Like you said, it's, it's, I'm so glad and you, you can said that. certainly offer resources, offer suggestions. It's just to be mindful to stay in that supportive role, not yeah. in that rescuer role because they're not a mm. victim and you're not a rescuer. You're a supporter. Yeah. 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 yeah it's amazing. Um, and that's a hard one. I just feel like already as people hear that, they're going to be like, what? what do you mean? But there's sometimes people, <laughs> I know it's a, it, it is a tough one. 
It's a great reminder anyway to outbalance the tendency because the tendency is so strong on the other end. And even you end up making it about yourself, I think, sometimes because you feel like, oh, I'm being presented with a situation and I don't feel capable of solving it for them. And now it's like I'm not even thinking about you and your suffering. I'm thinking about me and my inadequacies to be able to solve your problem. That's exactly it. Why? You got it. So you're making that person feel incapable. You got it. And you're also putting yourself in a position that you think it's your job to fix it. But it's not. It's what does that what does that bring up for you? When have there been times that you felt that you couldn't fix something? So it was scary or it made you because how many times have you tried to stepped into rescue a role consciously or unconsciously and got mad at that person? Because fuck, after all, I, I just told you 27 things and you didn't even do one of them. What? What does that bring up for you? When were there times that you felt right or that you wanted somebody to, to support you or somebody to help you? What is that dynamic with that person bringing up for you? It's like their reactions are not about you. Their reactions are about them. So if you're offering support to somebody who has grown up in a home where they were treated like a victim and they were always being rescued, that could be a real trigger. So you may say to somebody, hey, um, you know, I'm just going to make this sandwich. Can I make you one? And they hear you're you're incapable of making your own food or you're too lazy to make. They've heard something totally and they respond like, what do you mean? Why do you think I can't make my own sandwich? I can make my own sandwich. And then you go, oh my gosh, why are you being such a jerk? And next thing it's snowball. But if you take a breath in that moment, okay, wait a second. What did I just do? I offered to make that person a sandwich. And that person's reaction was pretty big to my offer of making a sandwich. So I'm going to take a breath and realize that their reaction is not about me. Their reaction is about them. And I'm going to take a breath and just trust they're going to take care of it. Or they're not but I just know it's not for me to take care of. Then I'm going to step away because they're not going to fix it or support me in this moment. I'm going to take a breath and say, but what did their reaction bring up in me? Mm. How did their reaction, how they got mad or how they pushed me away? Because I got, I kind of felt like the wind got knocked out of me because I went on the attack. What do you mean? I just wanted to make you a sandwich. And next thing we're yelling. Well, what was it about their reaction that made me react like that? Mm-hmm. And that's my work. So they've done me a gift, a service as well, because I can look at what is it like when somebody says no to my offer of help? What do I need to do to take care of that? Do I need to actually just go and have a cry? Do I need to go and stomp my feet? Because, man, I've, there's been times when I wanted to help and I just couldn't. And it just made me so mad, but I wasn't able to let that anger out. Or did it just scare me when they got upset? It scared me because lots of times in my past when people have got upset with me, I've either watched them fight with somebody else and that's hurt me or they have hurt me. So do I need to go and, you know, just grab a pillow and just like, and then, ah, scream the There's something about screaming in a pillow. It's so simple. When we're little kids, we go out for recess at lunch. And what do we do? Or recess or lunch break or whatever at school. Ah! And we start to get older and we put a cap on that. Oh, it's, it's not appropriate to cry here. It's not appropriate mm-hmm. to cry that way there. Yeah. And I, I actually talk in the book about, some countries that hire whalers and it's seen as more, uh, more, a more prestigious um, and more honorable uh, death if somebody, if everybody's crying at the funeral. Well, why would folks have to hire whalers? Because it's very difficult for some people to get to their grief. Is it because they're not sad that that person passed? Because one person's passing brings up any other experience of grief you've had in your life. But no, because it, we've put a cap on it so much, it can be really difficult to, to pluck that. So hire whalers 
just like when you're watching a sad movie, somebody's crying on the screen, it can help you then tap into your own, um, in, in your own tears. But again, kids are brilliant and they are given more space. A two-year-old that has a temper tantrum on the floor in Walmart, annoying to the parent, yes, maybe annoying to some of the shoppers, sure, but most of us would just say, oh, it's a two-year-old, or it's a two-year-old having a temper tantrum, you know, poor mom, poor dad, that must feel so stressful. What would it be like if mom or dad then dropped beside the child <laughs> and had a temper tantrum too? Love it. How many 911 calls might be made? How many security guards might come over and go, oh my gosh, something's wrong with that. But what about they're just having their feelings about how out of control they feel because their child's having their feelings? And what would, what would our relationship with our emotional expression be like if we just got to do stuff like that sometimes mm. so you know is screaming in a pillow as much fun as running you know down the playground screaming maybe not but it is a way of letting a scream out I'll do it in spin class when we are uh, going up and down hills and I will just say to the class okay we're gonna let some fear out we're climbing this hill we make the hill really hard and down we go Woo and I'll say high pitch scream let it out does everybody do it? No. In fact, quite often, I'm the only one that's screaming because it's scary. It's scary mm. to, what will somebody say? What will some, we've got big stories about what our emotional expressions, how they will be received and perceived by other people because we all have experiences. And like, I love how you said, you know, I wasn't told to suck it up as a kid, but I had a feeling like, if I cried, I might, then I might, if I make somebody else cry, somehow I'm responsible for hurting them. And I don't want mm -hmm. somebody else to be hurt. So we have a myriad of stories that we have and it, um, about, our, our, it doesn't have to be a, well, I was told to suck it up, or I was told, um, you know, boys don't cry or don't cry like a girl, you know, those kind of, of uh, societal expressions that granted we are kiboshing a lot of them now they are still there. There's still norms that create inner narrative and stories within ourselves about our allowance to have emotion and then express it. And I think this is, this is a great start, like the fact that we're talking about and we have a man and a woman having this conversation with me. I just had a message from a gentleman last night. Uh, he sent me a message through Facebook and uh, I haven't seen him since we were kids. And he said, you know, I didn't know that you went, were going through those things um, as a kid. But he said, I wanted to know how come more men aren't reading your book? And I thought that was a really great, like just really great feedback. And I said, well, I'd love you to put a review somewhere that, that yeah. it's important for men because that's more, it is more the norm mm. that men will hold in, you know, grief and fear, but they'll let out, you know, and, and a man that is angry and he's stomping his fist, he's determined and he's, He's strong and he's got something uh, powerful he wants to say. A woman yeah. does that. She's a bitch. She might be hysterical. She might be, there's a whole, and again, those stories, not only that, that society that says it, that is us too. We are guilty of saying that to other women. Oh my gosh, did you see how upset she was? She was hysterical. What the heck was wrong with her? Instead <laughs> of, wow, wasn't it brilliant that at that party, she was just able to let out those tears. She was able to share with all of us and she just let those tears out. And gosh, I, I kind of found myself crying too. That was amazing. Or the gentleman that, you know, gets, says, God, it, I, this happened to my daughter and I was so scared. 
that just scared me because I had no control of what was going to happen to her. And gosh, I was just shaking. I was so scared. How many men would then say, oh yeah, you know what I also experienced? I also experienced. Because as human mm -hmm. beings, that is how we connect. Yeah. There is no gender. We mm -hmm. all experience fear. We all experience grief. We all experience anger. Mm -hmm. The stories we have connected to it, that's what comes from our childhood. And that can be make or break, but I think it can just be make. We all can just honor. We've got stories about our, about our um, emotions and our ability to release them. What do we need to unpack so that we can remove the barriers, remove the shell? We can remove the facade of, I'm fine. Why does anybody think I'm fine? Why does anybody think I'm angry? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, you, it's amazing. I wish we could talk for another three hours about this. Uh, you've given me a brilliant TikTok idea about having a temper tantrum beside my son in Walmart. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That would be just <laughs> lovely. I love that idea. Better than any flash mob. Yeah. <laughs> temper tantrum flash mob. I love it. Right? I, uh, oh, I just, I love it. I would be remiss in saying all the, all the amazing things you do aside from the, the counseling that you do. You have, you're a personal trainer, you're a spin instructor, you help nonprofit uh, groups. I saw you do on Instagram, it was old, but you were doing fundraisers for a Release Your Heart fundraiser. I think it was old. Thank you. After Actually, after Jeff had his heart attack, which I write about in the book, um, we uh, started a fundraiser. We raised some money for the RVH cardiac uh, unit. And uh, even Jeff, was too, he ran a half marathon in the area. Wow. Good to for raise you. money just... for that. You are you're a powerhouse of a woman. We didn't even get to touch on most of it. Um, and the bodybuilding. Yeah, there's Body. a photo in your book at one point <laughs> of you. Awesome. Yeah, just a world champion bodybuilder. So it's just the power that you hold within yourself. That's a big title that you just gave me. I'm a world <laughs> champion, but thank you. <laughs> in our hearts. I did definitely yeah. don that uh, sparkly bikini and that Oompa Loompa tan Three times in a year, for sure. Yes, it's interesting. <laughs> oh, good for you. That takes a lot of. Courage. Thank you, thank you very much. And I hope that more conversations like this will happen moving forward. So I really appreciate both of you for seeing the value in my book and reading it, and seeing the value in, in sharing it. There's tremendous value in it. There's tremendous value in yourself. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm so grateful that you came on and that we got to have this conversation. I feel. Um, spoiled that we get to read these books and then actually dig into them with the author and ask all these questions that nobody else gets to ask. So thank you for allowing us yeah, to do that. And, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the time. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and the way you speak about, uh, you know, what, what your experiences and, and your, your philosophy, it really is very relatable. Like I, 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 as I'm hearing you go into these topics, I'm thinking about my life and my childhood and my feelings and how, and I'm sure, you know, uh, the other listeners are, will be going through the same thing. So you're, mm -hmm. you, it's interesting because you think you're talking about yourself, but you're just allowing other people to think about themselves. <laughs> and that's yeah. really a cool thing about, uh, to, to, to realize. So thank you, Danielle. I was wanted to say, you make me want to cry in the best way possible. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Thank you both again so, so very much.